Chapter 5. Not Another Yoga Session. University Wellbeing Programmes and Why They So Often Miss the Mark. Trigger Warnings, Discrimination, Harassment. There's perhaps nothing more disheartening as a PhD student than receiving yet another impersonal email about going to a yoga session or attending a webinar on How to Eat Well, hosted by our institutions. I remember one particular day when I was struggling heavily with my mental health. A mental health support email came round with the same content I had seen only a few weeks prior, and I felt even more deflated. Due to chronic underfunding of mental health services at universities, perhaps it is understandable that these programmes do not meet the needs of PhD students, but I argue that there is a duty of care and responsibility from an institutional level to ensure the safety of their students. I do, however, want to take a moment to recognise that there are amazing individuals within university mental health services who are working towards change and doing their absolute best to keep you well during your PhD and genuinely care about your welfare. These people are phenomenal and are often doing a superhuman amount of work within a restrictive and underfunded system. According to the 2019 Nature Report, only 29% of PhD students said that the mental health services at the university were tailored and appropriate to the needs of PhD students. And as little as one in three said that the one-to-one -one mental health support available was at least adequate for their needs. It's important to remember that these programmes have to be intentionally broad, as it is difficult to know exactly what students will be going through, though, as I will discuss later in the book, there is a whole host of commonalities in the PhD experience that can lead to increased stress and potentially affect mental health, which could be focused on. It is therefore easier to focus on broader topics, but what this does is leads to the delivery of often feeling impersonal. Undoubtedly, a whole host of changes need to be made and a balance struck to make well-being programmes fit for purpose. I want to state before I do a deep dive on well-being programmes that I have no issue with yoga or mindfulness or the principle of looking after your well-being. I would not be writing this book otherwise. I think they are incredibly important. Yoga and meditative practices help a whole host of people manage stress and are great self-care tools. What I do take issue with is in some cases, well-being programmes implying that if you just try harder, you can fix your own mental illness and that it is your individual responsibility alone to fix it. In my opinion, this is like prescribing a band-aid to fix a broken bone. This approach is deep-rooted in the clinical psychology deficit model of disability, which suggests that psychopathology is the result of dysfunction and distress and this occurs due to some deficiency within the individual struggling. I argue that the real problem for most PhD students is actually the barriers they face from society, the environment they're working in, the attitudes towards mental health from those around them, and from university management itself. This is the disability social model when it comes to mental health support and provision. Thankfully, more and more university-wide approaches are moving away from the deficit model and towards the social model. Historically, many universities have adopted a reactive approach to mental health support for students, waiting until an issue arises before intervention, then referring students to on-site wellbeing support and counselling services. In recent years, there has been a move towards providing more proactive approaches for student wellbeing, which has resulted in the development of mindfulness sessions, resilience training, peer support groups and much more. In principle, this is really useful, 
So how is it that programmes designed for intervention so often seem to miss the mark? For me, there are several reasons. The lack of authenticity. Often wellbeing programmes are one-size-fits-all. They are generic, and often, due to lack of funding, they have been adapted from undergraduate support services and are not well-tailored to the PhD experience. What results is that the wellbeing programme feels disingenuous, serving as a box-ticking exercise rather than a resource to actually help students. Not acknowledging the environmental factors at play. From experience, wellbeing programmes tend to focus on what the PhD student can do to look after themselves, but does not discuss the structural and systemic issues that PhD students may face during their research programmes. More on this in later chapters. For example, PhD student 4 states, It's like just sticking on a plaster rather than actually addressing the underlying systemic issues that create the need for these courses in the first place. If someone's well-being is suffering, it's not because they're not being mindful or resilient enough. No opportunity for feedback, follow-up. Well-being programmes historically have not always been developed in collaboration with PhD students. This can be further limited if there is no mechanism for feedback resulting in a well-being programme that is not fit for purpose. Increasing focus on co-production of resources, as highlighted through the UK University Mental Health Charter, is driving change in this area, but is not realised globally. Inexperienced trainers. Sometimes the people delivering the training have little experience of what a PhD programme is actually like. This means that when asked specific questions, they struggle to help PhD students with their queries and concerns. Lack of consideration for cultural differences. Depending on the background of PhD students, speaking about mental health in a public forum may not be comfortable. Further, initiatives that are designed to help may be challenging for some. For example, therapy dog visits may pose a challenge due to fear of dogs or due to the fact that dogs are considered ritually unclean in some religions. Inherent ableism. Often the advice for improving mental health is to get more physical exercise and or eat better food. These in principle are a good idea, but fail to account for individuals that cannot get outside to do physical exercise, for example, having a disability or experiencing agoraphobia. Nor do they account for individuals that may have a complex relationship with food, with eating disorders common amongst the graduate student population. In my experience, typically no alternative well-being advice is given. It is this combination of the blanket email, the lack of authenticity and the focus on tackling issues which seems so far away from the day-to-day -day issues we are facing that can feel incredibly disingenuous. And let's be frank, a visit from the therapy dogs on campus is nice, but it isn't going to fix mental illness. Another considerable challenge to these proactive approaches to mental health support is that they are often simply not embedded in the research culture of our institutions. They're seen as a waste of time. As a PhD student, given time pressures and cynicism from faculty around mental health support, wellness programmes often get a bad rapport. Thus, it is super easy for us to withdraw from participating in wellbeing initiatives entirely, it's certainly what I ultimately ended up doing during my own PhD. Despite this, I'm now going to spend the next few paragraphs advocating heavily for why you should consider attending them. Trying something new. It's not often we reflect on why these wellbeing programmes in academia and universities exist in the first place. I've become somewhat cynical over the last few years 
and often see them as universities ticking a box labelled mental health and calling their job done. And in many instances, I have observed this to be the case. However, we need to look at what these wellbeing programmes can do for us in spite of this. If we take a step back, what wellbeing programmes are giving you are tools to look after your mental health and bolster your self-care. And just like any toolbox, there are tools that are going to be fit for purpose and some that, quite frankly, aren't. Just like you wouldn't try to use a crowbar to sculpt a statue, not every wellbeing event you attend will work for you. If we reframe these wellbeing programmes into how they might help you, they can provide you the opportunity to try different techniques and methods for improved wellbeing. Knowing what you dislike can be as powerful as knowing what you do like when it comes to self-care. Connect you with other individuals who may be in a similar situation. There is huge power in having other people to speak to about how you're feeling and knowing that you aren't alone. Pay special attention to who attends from your cohort. Provide you with specific time dedicated to your well-being. These sessions are university-approved time to explore mental health and well-being, providing you with an opportunity to take a step back from your research and have a breather. Put you in contact with individuals that genuinely care for your welfare. Attending these sessions can provide you with the opportunity to meet people in university mental health services that can provide support and point you in the direction of resources that might help. So next time you see a wellbeing session on at your university, know that just because a previous session was not helpful, it doesn't mean that a follow-up one is not going to work. By taking an hour out of your day to meet like-minded individuals, as well as the other possible advantages above, it might just be worth it. Worst case, it might just end up leading to an open and frank conversation with your peers, as, whilst perhaps it should not be the case, one of the benefits of well-being programmes often being so bad is discussing with your colleagues how awful they are, opening dialogue and connecting through solidarity. Another big barrier to attending well-being sessions, or taking time out of your day for your own self-care, can be finding the time to go. This can be made even harder if your PhD supervisor does not believe mental health is important or that wellbeing programmes are useful. Tip. If you want to attend the sessions, remember that you have a right to attend university sessions and to look after your wellbeing. Building resilience. Resilience is defined as the ability to maintain or regain mental health despite experiencing adversity. And it is a term that is bandied around a lot and understandably so. Resilience is incredibly important because studying for a PhD is tough. In the description of what resilience is, it is defined as an ability. I like this because it highlights that we can learn resilience, hone our skill and improve on it with time. For me personally, I find that resilience is best described with an analogy. That it is in fact a shelter that we build to protect ourselves from stormy weather. During our PhD, that weather may well represent the challenges we have to navigate throughout the PhD process itself, as well as anything else life deems to throw at us. How robust our shelter is, whether it is a barely standing wooden shed or more a stone castle with a protective moat, depends on whether we have been given the tools that are fit for purpose to build a sturdy shelter, self-care, and if we have a strong support network, friends, family and sympathetic colleagues, to help supply the mortar and strengthen it. It is important to note that not everyone starts on a level playing field either. Privilege plays a role. 
generational wealth or access to healthcare can all make a huge difference. So when you're building that resilience up, others around you may have part of that shelter already built. This is important to understand when helping those around you too. They may benefit from your support and guidance. So what can you do to bolster your own resilience? Understanding that saying yes to something is saying no to something else. Our energy and time is finite. And thus, if we say yes to an opportunity, it is necessary to acknowledge that if we take on something new when we are already at capacity, ultimately we're sacrificing something else. That could mean delivering on another project to a substandard level or impacting our self-care, pushing us closer to burnout. Tip. If possible, wait 24 hours before agreeing to do something new. This can allow you to truly understand the time commitment and if you have capacity. Learn to accept constructive criticism. Accepting criticism of your work can be really tough, particularly when you've put all your effort into it. It is important to remember that most critique is designed to help you grow and improve. If you already knew how to be an academic, you would have your PhD already. It can help to focus on what the intent of the feedback is. Do you need to be more concise? Did you not read the literature in full? This is all learning and something to improve on next time. An important part of growth is taking this on board and bouncing back. I also want to highlight that sometimes feedback is not constructive. This might include using capital letters to reiterate points or being overly harsh. Recognising that the feedback is not constructive is important for your well-being. Tip. Consider. Are they critiquing your work or are they critiquing you directly? Realise your worth is not based on your PhD. We can be so tied up in our education that we think our worth is entirely linked to our academic outputs. This is not the case. Find joy in hobbies and activities outside of work if you can. These can help counter when you may feel low during your PhD programme. Build a support network. Finding peers and colleagues you can speak to can truly help to share the burden of your PhD programme. Make sure to speak to your family and friends about what you're experiencing too. We can think that our family is so invested in us getting a PhD that we cannot speak ill of it, but I guarantee that those that love you care for your welfare more. Tip. Find like-minded PhD students in university societies and sports teams as well as online through social media. Understand that failure is part of the process. Research not going your way can be hard to reconcile with. Failure is not a bad thing. I use the term failure loosely, as I think with all failing comes learning, which ultimately isn't failure at all, as it is only by trying new things that you can discover something new. Tip. Reframe failure as a learning opportunity. Seek professional support. Sometimes building resilience requires specific tools to help us improve it. This is where professional help may come in. Whether it is professional coaching or seeking counselling, there are many ways you might seek support. Tip. Most UK universities offer a set of therapy coaching sessions for free. Try asking your graduate school for more information. Check with your university medical centre and find out what they offer. In some countries, you can access reduced fee or free counselling services if your university has a clinical psychology or counselling training centre for their students. Finally, building resilience takes time. We often need to be exposed to situations to then learn to adapt to them. 
For example, the first time we experience a paper being rejected, it hurts. Of course it does. It's only natural given that we put all our time and effort into it. But with experience, after taking a moment to address how we feel, we can learn to look over the feedback we get, make changes and bounce back. Usually, what we end up with is much better than the manuscript we first submitted. The darker side of resilience. There is a darker side of resilience. Fundamentally, there are certain situations that individuals should not have to be resilient through. This includes systemic issues like racism, sexism, harassment and bullying that are rife through the academy, discussed in more detail in Chapter 8. No one should be subject to this behaviour. This should not happen and much needs to change. Individuals that are victim to these abhorrent behaviours are often hugely resilient because they're forced to be. If this is you right now, know that you deserve to be treated with dignity and respect and the situation that you find yourself in is not your fault. Know it is also okay to realise you have reached a point in time where you have no resilience left to give and that you need to put yourself first and walk away, although it is not okay you've been treated this way. Prioritising your well-being is perhaps the biggest act of defiance. Resilience is also an easy fallback option for universities to rely heavily on, because then the onus for being unwell then falls on you for not being resilient enough. It can make us feel guilty and inadequate, when in reality we should not be being mistreated in the first place. This is gaslighting. Yes, resilience is important, but not acknowledging clear, systemic issues that impact mental health can be damaging. More on this in section 3. PhD student 5 states, I'm tired of being resilient. I have more resilience than most and it still doesn't feel like enough. Advocating for better. What can universities do to improve PhD student wellbeing programmes? With the amount of financial support being put into PhD mental wellbeing programmes, universities must consider evaluating and collecting feedback on whether the wellbeing programmes that they're running are actually catered for the PhD students they're providing for. If they are found to be ineffective, a holistic view must be taken to remodel student support. There are several key areas that universities can improve on, in my opinion. 1. Realistic, frank conversations about mental health management and mental health literacy. This includes recognising the signs of mental health distress in yourself and those around you, self-care and discussing lived experiences through panel discussions or similar. 2. Involvement of academic staff in wellbeing discussions. This enables staff to understand the specific strains that PhD students are experiencing, particularly when supervisors may be out of touch with what being on a PhD programme is like. Note, caution must be taken to create student-only spaces too. 3. Acknowledging the systemic barriers. The research culture and the role it plays in increasing stress on PhD students must be acknowledged or there is a risk of disenfranchising the very students that wellbeing programmes are designed to help. It is important to realise that systemic issues are sector-wide and not just specific to a particular institution, so acknowledging they exist are not going to put students off your university, but they may help them manage their mental health during the PhD process. This involves moving away from the deficit model towards the social model for mental health. 4. Teach students about their rights and resources available to them. This includes how to set boundaries, how to change supervisor and how to file a complaint about misconduct. 
Transparency around sick leave, maternity leave and vacation entitlement is also needed. 5. Create a sustainable, frequent programme. Putting well-being at the core of the PhD programme is essential. This means having a targeted well-being programme with content that does not repeat too often. Making sure the programme is frequent and visible also helps to cement the idea that mental wellness is a priority. Finally, perhaps the most important of all, is recognising that no matter what well-being services you provide as an institution, if systemic issues prevail, it is like providing a boat with a hole in it out at sea, with little more than a bucket to stop the sinking. A two-pronged approach is therefore needed, focusing not only on managing symptoms, but also managing the cause of systemic issues. There is no short-term quick fix to this, but recognising that the institution can influence and change the research culture is a necessary first step.